When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm your host, Miles Traer. Climate change is one of the many defining characteristics of the Anthropocene, but it's about more than greenhouse gases, energy consumption, and rising temperatures. Climate matters because of the ways it interacts with us. So what is at stake? On today's show, we're looking at those stakes at the global scale. Our first story is about the link between climate change and conflict. Our producer, Leslie Chang, has the story. Until now, we've never really had to consider all the ways in which our normal climate is important. It turns out that climate doesn't just shape our relationship with the Earth. It can also affect our interactions with each other. And as a growing body of research suggests, climate might influence how violent we are against other humans. Marshall Burke is a Stanford professor who studies connections between climate variables like temperature and precipitation and human conflict. We throw a lot of things into the conflict bucket. So this this captures everything from interpersonal conflict. So this is things like uh, aggravated assault or murder, all the way up to group level conflict. So things you read about in the newspaper, things like uh, civil war in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, a lot of researchers have probed the links between climate and conflict. But in 2013, Marshall and his colleagues did a meta-analysis. Essentially, they compiled all the research across disciplines, including economics, political science, sociology, geography, and even archaeology. And after digging through all the climate conflict research they could get their hands on, here's what they found. In 21 out of 21 studies, we saw a positive relationship between temperature and conflict. So the chance of that happening by chance... The likelihood of that happening by chance uh, is less than one in a million, right? So this thing is real. And to us, the consistency across studies 
was incredibly surprising. To give you an example of the kind of research that Marshall and his colleagues looked at, one study attempted to isolate the effect of temperature on police performance during a training exercise. The officers in the study had to make quick decisions about whether or not to shoot. You know, so you can imagine these exercises, it's, uh, it's you know, cardboard cutouts of people popping up and, the, and the, uh, the policeman has to figure out, you know, who's the civilian and who's the bad guy, right? And, and when it gets really hot, their decision-making uh, really breaks down and they end up shooting the civilian and not shooting the bad guy. And, and, and when interviewed afterwards, they felt more threatened in this hotter environment. Police departments everywhere have known for a long time that many violent crimes spike in the summer when it's hotter. But the studies that Marshall and his team explored weren't comparing summer temperatures to winter temperatures. They were comparing regular summers to abnormal summers. In other words, it's not just the temperature that matters. It's the variation from normal. And you use that variation to understand, okay, on hotter than average days, what happens to crime? In this case, aggravated assault or murder. And what we see is on on hotter than average days, these types of crime uh, go up and, and sometimes dramatically. But the links between climate and conflict are not just on the person-to-person level. They're also group-to-group, like on the scale of militias and armies. And what's more, the relationship shows up again and again throughout history. And what researchers have shown is that some of these iconic collapse events throughout history, so the collapse of Angkor Wat in Cambodia, the collapse of the Maya in Central America, the collapse of the the Anasazi in the southwestern U.S., uh, these have the fingerprints of climate sort of all over them. Of course, one of the reasons Marshall's study is so important is because of what it might mean for global warming today. The implication is that we might see more conflicts around the globe as climate changes in the coming decades. But all of this begs the question, what is actually going on here? What's the causal mechanism? Unfortunately, at this point, we don't really know. I think we're very clear in the study to say, look, we know very little about the mechanism. There are many different purported mechanisms that could be linking these things. And so the goal of research now to be, should be to try to understand what's going on. And in large part, that's what policymakers are going to need to know. Uh, you need to know, you know, what are the intervening variables between climate and conflict? Uh, and once you know those variables, then, then you might be able to do a lot more to help society sort of adapt to changes in climate. For Marshall, this question of mechanism is critical. One starting point is to look at the relationship between climate variables and resource scarcity. For example, prolonged droughts could reduce crop yields, driving incomes down. This could lead to heightened tensions that then escalate into violence. However, changes in income wouldn't explain why police performance is worse when it's hot during training exercises, or why heat waves are correlated with violent crimes. So this, again, uses day-to-day variation in temperature. So we know that incomes aren't really shifting around on a day-to-day timescale, right? So the the crime results probably have nothing to do with income. And and as the psychologists, I think, have told us for a long time, it it probably has much more to do with the sort of fundamental human physiological response to hot temperatures. When it gets really hot, we just do badly. We freak out. We don't play well with others. We do worse on tests. You know, this has been shown over and over in many different settings. Humans are just really bad at dealing with hot temperatures. So maybe there are a few different things going on. Maybe income is the main factor at the intergroup level, and maybe there's some human physiological response at the interpersonal level. For now, the mechanisms are just speculation, and the research is ongoing. For Marshall, the policy implications of understanding these links are paramount. 
to be able to adapt, we need to understand mechanism. I mean, that that's that's all there is to it. Otherwise, you know, it's 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 really hard to know where to invest your your sort of scarce dollar. So again, we know that temperatures are going to keep increasing. Um, you know, we there are some policy levers that will sort of change the amount that temperatures are going to increase, but we know that temperatures will increase some. So we need to be able to adapt to those changes in temperature. And so to understand adaptation in this context uh, means that we have to know something about what relates climate to changes in conflict. If it's just a human physiological response, then let's just try to keep individuals cool. If it's the income response, that has a very different policy implication. So in that setting, you can think about social safety nets or insurance schemes that would help shield farmers' incomes from variation in climate. Uh, these will help for all sorts of reasons, but our studies would suggest um, insofar as income is implicated here, this could also uh, help reduce conflict. So we've just seen how climate change reaches out to affect human conflict. But what if we looked in the other direction? Can humans take a more active role at controlling the climate system? And to be clear, we already affect it, but we're talking about controlling it. Our next story is about a radical and some might say foolhardy approach to tackling climate change. Geoengineering. Producer Mike Osborne has the story. If you've never heard of geoengineering before, at first, it's going to sound crazy. The basic idea is that there might be a way to deploy some planet-wide technology in order to intentionally control the temperature of Earth. Crazy, right? On the other hand, we've been trying to break our dependency on fossil fuels for decades, and with little success. So while the climate situation grows more desperate, in some circles, the geoengineering conversation is quietly gaining traction. Ken Caldera is a climate scientist at Stanford, and he's become one of the go-to sources for explaining the science of geoengineering. Despite some recent movements, such as the EPA regulations of coal-fired power plants, there's still an expectation that globally greenhouse gas emissions will continue to go up for some decades. And so this has led people to think of well, if the policy community doesn't get its act together with regard to greenhouse gas emissions in a timely enough fashion, is there something that could be done if bad things start to happen? This is where geoengineering comes in. And there's a number of different ideas on the table. One approach is carbon dioxide removal, where we attack the problem at the root source. Basically, do everything we can to pull greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. But according to Ken, this would be a monumental and impractical undertaking. For every CO2 molecule that you put into the atmosphere, you have to do something to pull that molecule back out. And whatever system you're going to build to pull that carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere is going to be you know, roughly the same magnitude. And so I think most observers think, look, if you're going to spend all your effort in trying to build something that's approximately the scale of the energy system, maybe we should focus on building a good energy system and not just something that kind of cleans up after a bad energy system. Since pulling excess CO2 out of the atmosphere is probably not feasible, geoengineering researchers have gravitated towards a different approach. 
And the other way is to basically dim the sun to prevent sunlight from being absorbed by the Earth. The idea here is that we can offset greenhouse warming by diminishing the amount of energy and sunlight that hits the Earth in the first place, essentially pulling down the shades. While this may seem absurd, it's actually feasible to do this by injecting a layer of tiny sulfate particles into the upper atmosphere. We have pretty high confidence that this would work to cool the Earth because we've seen the Earth cool after large volcanoes. It's thought that humans could, by flying airplanes around or shooting artillery shells or whatever, put a similar layer of aerosols in the stratosphere. Injecting particles into the stratosphere to cool the planet may sound bananas, but the amount of aerosols you'd need to cool the planet is surprisingly small. It's thought that a, sort of a single fire hose worth of stuff going constantly would be enough to maintain a, a aerosol layer that would offset all of the warming expected this century. And the, there's been cost estimates for this proposal that are in the several billions of dollars per year, which sounds like a lot of money, but compared to the entire federal budget or the cost of transforming our energy system is kind of in the noise. There's lots of potential negatives, but at least in terms of feasibility and efficacy from a purely physical and economic point of view, it seems eminently doable. That is sort of the critical point. This sulfate injection solar geoengineering scheme is doable. Problematic, but doable. And once you have a viable, relatively cheap idea on the table, it's hard to put the genie back into the bottle. So, okay, what are the drawbacks? Why not do it? Well, for starters, it's one thing to show that this works in sophisticated computer models, and another thing to try it in the real world. There are uncertainties, especially at the regional scale, about what would actually happen if we injected these aerosols into the atmosphere. Where you get disagreements are if you go to small spatial scales and argue about what's going to happen where, especially on the rainfall stuff, uh, there's more disagreement about where we'll get wetter and where we'll get drier. So while overall the whole planet might cool down, at the local level some places might end up drier or hotter or rainier. The impacts wouldn't be uniform across the globe, and it's not easy to separate the human fingerprint from natural variability. Another problem is that while sulfate injection may reduce global temperatures, it still leaves excess CO2 in the atmosphere, and therefore it does nothing to combat ocean acidification. But Ken is actually less worried about the environmental risks. He's more worried about the political implications. One of the problems with global warming is that it takes years to decades for the climate effects to kick in. So in the short term, policymakers don't see many upsides for cutting back on carbon emissions. But with geoengineering, people might think that the effects would be more immediate. So they might be tempted to just go ahead and do it, opening up a huge can of worms. Let's say China started modifying the climate uh, because they were getting too hot to grow crops well. And then let's say that, I don't know, maybe the Indian monsoon weakens or something, and then India doesn't get as much rain as they would get. And, and first of all, whether the Indian monsoon getting weaker was related to what the Chinese were doing or not is almost irrelevant, because if, if it just happened to be that their monsoons failed for a few years after the Chinese started doing this, they might blame the Chinese for it anyway. And then, you know, these are two nuclear-armed nations, and are they going to be in, in conflict? That's just one scenario. 
You could easily substitute the U.S. and Russia for India and China, or any other two countries. The point is, solar geoengineering has the potential to exacerbate geopolitical tensions and become a poker chip on the international stage. You might think these scenarios sound far-fetched. But with climate change upon us, is it really all that surprising? For many people, these are the stakes. Now, to be clear, Ken, like most geoengineering researchers, will tell you that he is not at all advocating for solar geoengineering deployment, but that he does want to see more research into the subject. I think one thing that's hard to communicate to people is this difference in advocating research and advocating doing something. You know, so I'm an advocate of researching this stuff, but constitutionally, I don't like the idea of it. And, you know, if somebody were about to start a program tomorrow putting aerosols in the stratosphere, I would, you know, probably be chaining myself to the fence or something like that. As bat poop crazy as geoengineering may be, at some point, the effects of unchecked global warming could compel radical action. If and when this comes to pass, we want to be armed with as much information as possible. That's it for this episode of Generation Anthropocene. Next time on the podcast... Where you're not sure exactly how productive the soils are. You're not really even sure how the hydrologic cycle works. You're not sure what system of cropping and rotation would approach sustainability. And you even, for a moment, think you might be able to grow coffee in this place? Coffee doesn't grow, and they tried, and they tried, and then they moved on to other crops. And in short, a massive, unfortunate experiment was tried on a million people. That's next time on Generation Anthropocene. Our show is produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, and me, Miles Trayer. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter, at genanthropocene. If you enjoy our show, please leave us a comment on iTunes. Give us a rating. Subscribe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I, I know you were envisioning saying bat poop in that. I, that, I totally forgot. I, 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 all, all I knew, there's something in the final <laughs> monologue that I really like. I there's a gem at is. the end. Yeah, there's a little me. gem. The implication is that as bat poop crazy, <laughs> f- that's fun to say. <laughs> All right. What do you think? I think we're done for this for today. 